everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I wrote the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, Navigating a Healthy Pregnancy for Mom and Baby. And this podcast is everything we didn't have room to put in the book, because when it comes to pregnancy, parenting, and this job we have of raising the next generation, while also working full-time and keeping ourselves afloat, It's no easy feat, and there's a lot to talk about and talk through, right? Yeah. So let's see. Let's talk a little bit about current events, shall we? Here in the United States, at the moment that I'm recording this, we're facing a government shutdown potentially. Dreamers are potentially facing deportation from the only country they've ever known. We're hearing about Haitians and El Salvadorians and people from so many beloved so called shithole countries, spoken about in really hostile, ignorant, and hurtful ways. It's a hard time, isn't it? And it's frustrating that the big correction that needs to be made by our government leaders doesn't seem to be happening as fast as we want. Right now, it doesn't feel to me like my country's values, leadership, and integrity is being upheld. Right now, it feels like we're witnessing the worst that leadership can offer, But at the same time, we're also witnessing a social revolution where women are standing out front. Me too, time's up, and the behavior of men in leadership positions have given women the mic that we've so long deserved and the opportunity to make real inroads into leadership positions. Women are signing up to run for elections like never before. Women are speaking out about the issues that are important to us like never before. So yeah, it's a hard time. But for those of us standing right here at this time in history, it's our moment to rise. It's our moment to look at our roles as parents, as teachers, and as leaders in every moment of our day and decide what do our values, leadership, and integrity look like? I mean, you know, in real life, the lives that you and I live, when you get right down to it, those big ideals don't happen in big spotlight moments, at least not very often. They happen in the tiny ones, the little inconsequential things that we do all the time. That's where it really matters. And those are the choices we have control over, right? I mean, no no pressure, folks, but the leaders of this world are you and me and the people we hang out with. It's our kids, their friends, and the communities that we create to raise them in. And it's not just communities right here in our own states. It's everywhere, all over the world, and we all have a chance to make it better. Okay, okay, sorry about that. I'm feeling passionate about what's going on in the world. And frankly, since a year ago, I was in D.C. for the Women's March on Washington, I'm still feeling a bit dismayed at how much has happened and, you know, how much damage has been done, but also just about how much passion has risen up. Advocacy and activism is happening and making a difference. And yes, I'm dismayed, but I'm also really excited and optimistic and grateful that I have this chance to witness it and be part of it. I mean, aren't you? Aren't you glad to be here now in some way? A lot of us are. Yeah. Okay, let's switch gears. Um, I saw a short video piece, really clever combination of video documentary and text message over on time.com. It's a piece called 
Finding Home. And it was written and put together by Aaron Baker, Lindsay Adario, and Francesca Triani. Um, it's about a year in the life of a Syrian refugee mother and baby. And it's a year of text messages that track her experience from her for her daughter's first year. And if you want to know what's going on out there in the world, especially in hotspot places like Syria, there's no better way to learn what life is like for the mamas and their babies and the real people. Find out what conditions families are surviving in. You know, I'll tell you, it sure makes you look at your own life with a different perspective. So let's see, let's, let's answer an email and then let's get to this week's guest. So I got an email last week from Kamala who wants to know what's the best way to get into the birth industry. I'm in college studying art, but I had a chance to see my sister deliver her baby. It was incredible. And now I really want to work in this field. The thing is, I'm not sure if I want to be a nurse or a midwife or an obstetrician. And since I'm almost finished with my Bachelor of Art degree in fine art, I'm worried that I don't have the relevant history to do the formal education in this field. What's the best way to approach this? Oh, hey, Kamala, welcome. I totally get it. And I actually get this email quite often. A lot of us, you know, kind of catch the birth bug after witnessing a birth. And we find our way into the business side of it from, you know, a variety of angles. I went into it, um, you know, I got to see my nephew born when I was really young. And I always, you know, kind of thought that what I wanted to do was be a midwife someday. But nursing school at that time was a turned out to be a really doable and feasible and even affordable option for me to complete. And so I followed that path. And uh, considering that I was pregnant with my first two daughters throughout my entire nursing school experience, it turns out that that was a really good choice. As a nurse, I was able to work in the field on a regular basis on, with regular hours, know that I can make a living to support my family. And, you know, that was my circumstance and the path that I followed. That's how I got into it. If I hadn't been in that circumstance, I might have gone to midwifery school. I don't know. I might not. I have a friend who is a videographer and documentarian who has had the opportunity to film births in many countries. And she wanted to take a more, I don't know, active role or hands-on role uh, at the births that she attended. So she took a doula training course. It was like a, a long weekend thing and a real immersion into what it means to be labor support. And that gave her the opportunity over time to witness births and to really understand the different in roles involved in various settings. Um, you know, the nurse's role, the doula's role, the midwife's role, the obstetrician's role. And she decided that she was going to go for midwifery school. And, um, you know, she she didn't have that kind of a background in college either. So she just started enrolling in the prerequisite courses that she would need in order to apply. That was like her first step. And, you know, it just isn't always necessary to have a med school or nursing school undergrad focus. There are a lot of ways to go into it. So I don't know, Kamala, maybe your next step could be to, excuse me, reach out to a few local folks, you know, midwives, doulas, and ask if you can shadow or attend a training, you know, just dip your toes in the waters and see what comes up. So let's see, before we get our guest on the line, who happens to know a little something about finding her way from an unlikely spot right into the middle of the birth world, I want to take a moment to say, buy the book, will ya? 
Common Sense Pregnancy uh, is a Penguin Random House publication that I put out a couple of years ago that is probably going to answer most of your questions about prenatal care, maternal health care. You're going to find it over on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in your local bookstores, and of course, over on my website, genefaulkner.com. And if you order a copy over there, I'll sign it and send it out super fast. Also, I wanted to let you guys know again that Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, is a proud member of the Parents on Demand Network. That's POD Network, which includes podcasts about all kinds of pregnancy and parenting topics. So go check us out over there. Alrighty, so our guest today followed a pretty interesting path from musical theater to the creation of Prenatal Yoga Center, and we're going to talk about how she found her way into the birth world. Deb Flaschenberg is a graduate of the Boston Conservatory of Music with a degree in musical theater. She's spent most of her life performing and was introduced to yoga through a choreographer in the late 90s. After several years as a student, She became certified as a Bikram yoga instructor. And, you know, during that time, she was able to witness several typical hospital births. And she felt it was important to move beyond the yoga room and be more present in the birthing room. That's a theme we're kind of talking about here, isn't it? So in 2003, Deb attended her first birth as a DONA certified labor support doula. And in that During that time, she has attended about 100 births. Um, In 2006, she became a Lamaze certified childbirth instructor. And 2007, she completed a midwife assistant program with Ina Mae Gaskin, Pamela Hunt, and many of the other farm midwives. Um, Eventually, she turned all of that into the creation of uh, prenatal yoga center. And we're going to talk to her today about how that happened. So let's get Deb on the line. Hi, Deb. How are you? Good. How are you? I am doing really well. Deb, are you in New York? Um, well, my studio is in New York, but I live in New Jersey now, which is still kind of hard to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it really? New York? <laughs> Ah, uh, so is it cold? Are you cold there? Yes, is- we just had snow this morning, which my kids were so excited about. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm in Portland, Oregon. It's really, really cold here, but um, I'm certain that listeners in the Midwest are telling me to quit whining. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> yeah, my in-laws are there. Whenever I check in, they're like, oh, we just got eight inches of snow. And I'm like, glad we don't live there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't ever ask us about the weather. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, my first question for everybody on the pod, and I read a bit of your bio before I got you on the line, is this. Who are you and what do you do? Um, Okay. So I feel like I have many hats of who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess first and foremost, I'm a mother of two. I have two young kids, three and six, Shay and Sage. And I guess before that whole world, I had many other worlds before. I started doing musical theater and I did that for many years. And then at one point I started to not want to perform as much as I wanted to teach yoga. And I thought, oh, that's a sign. If something I'd been doing for most of my life is now not my priority, maybe I need to look at my priorities. So I started to teach yoga, and I wasn't really enchanted by the type I had embarked on, um, which was Bikram yoga. It really wasn't working for me so well. So 
I started to look at other types and that's where my whole prenatal started. And so that helped me become a prenatal yoga teacher because I guess that's part of who I am. And from there, I decided to open a yoga studio, prenatal yoga center. And it's kind of funny because my degree is in musical theater. So (laughs) opening a business at 28 was a little bit of a surprise to everyone. Learning curve there. It was, yeah. You know, but I start to think like, I learned the way I work with my students in the studio is common sense and provide the best possible service and treat my students how I want to be treated when I go into a yoga studio or any service. Mm -hmm. But a big turning point in, I think, identifying who I am was when one of my students who was doing her fellowship at one of the teaching hospitals in the city asked me to attend births. You know, I had never seen birth at that point. I was just, I learned about it. I, I took a prenatal training. I read about it. But going in and seeing what birth was in our country was really eye-opening. And I think that changed the whole trajectory of who I am as a person and what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a bit horrified from how I saw birth in a hospital setting. And I walked away feeling like what I do in the yoga room was not enough. I needed to bridge the gap between what I was teaching and what they were going to experience and then give them the information to be able to speak to their care provider about getting better care. Mm -hmm. So I enrolled in a a doula um, program and I got trained from that. And I think that was like 15 years ago, 14, 15 years ago. And I just kept being thirsty for more information. And I realized I never would have started to think at the onset of opening prenatal yoga center that I was going to be a birth advocate, that I would look at myself as someone that stood up and was passionate about helping women find a birth that suited them. So I then became um, a a Lamaze teacher. I ended up going down to the farm. Um, I started my blog about, I think, 12 years ago, and then the podcast about two years ago. So I think who I am, it's not just a mother, because that also informed me of how I teach. But I, I'm someone that deeply cares about having women have the birth they envision for themselves and having their rights heard about their birth. You know, I, I was going to ask you, because your history is kind of, you know, starting in musical theater and ending up in the birth industry, it's it's an interesting path that you've followed. And, you know, it's not an uncommon one, except for the musical theater part. I haven't ever talked to anybody who went from musical theater to the birth industry. But well, unless you, if you lived in New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, Ilan, who is the founder of Choices in Childbirth, was in theater. Yes. And my mentor, Terry Richmond, one of the most sought after um, doulas, was also in theater. There you go. Um, yeah, I think it's you know, New York calls performers. Um, yeah. I think many of us get disenchanted by that lifestyle um, and then somehow fall into birth. Or for a lot of people, it's they're having their own children that inspired them. You know, yeah. I, and to, to see you know, how they can help women in birth, that actually was not my path. Like a lot, of, I had my kids well into my experience in birth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not uncommon that yoga and um, that people go to yoga and then find their way into the birth industry. True, and 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 it's often you know just so commonly linked that prenatal yoga is a thing. You know, it's pretty standard that it's recommended to women these days. They Mm -hmm. may not have 
a prenatal stu- yoga studio or even a yoga studio near them, but it'll be recommended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is, I think is great. I think yoga can be a huge service to women in preparing physically and mentally and emotionally for birth. So I'm glad mm-hmm. a lot of care providers are now supporting that. Yeah, me too. So did you have your children in New York? I did. Um, yeah. In my home, I chose to do a home birth. And I think that was because I saw a lot of hospital births as a doula. And it yeah. was not something that I wanted for myself unless I absolutely had to. I feel like uh, I felt safer at home than I would have in a hospital, which is I know is not the case for many for many women. Sure. You know, as a doula, I have a lot of, and you're a nurse, so I mean, you, you right. well know this. Right, labor and delivery. Yeah. Yes. And I've I've had an out of an out of hospital birth too. I'm a fan for people that are into it and want to do it, and they've got the right, you know, midwife and emergency backup system. Yeah. I think it's a safe option for many women, especially you know, I'm in New York. Midwives don't actually deliver babies in the hospitals. They Some might do. do the prenatal care. Some do, but it's in New York City. Yes, in New York talking- City. Yeah, some do, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, mm. there used to be a freestanding birth center, Elizabeth right. Deaton, but that closed, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago, um, yep. maybe more. And yep. now the midwives that we have, there are some that still work in the hospital. There is a birth center in one of the hospitals in Manhattan. Um, it's mm-hmm. not freestanding. It's not just a floor below. But there's right. a small handful. Oh, and there's also Metropolitan Hospital that just opened a midwifery um, center. Uh, not a birth center, but well, maybe they do have a birth center too. But there are midwives there. So there are definitely some in New York City. Uh, yeah. But it, there's not a lot. There's, but there's a lot of home birth midwives. Yeah, yeah. Which is really different than here in Portland and, um, you know, Seattle and California and a lot of Western states is that midwives are all over the place. I mean, you could, you can find a midwife to do a hospital delivery here, no problem. And I know that you're going to have to look pretty hard in New York City. As, and and what's interesting to me is that there's the handoff at delivery. A lot of people will get midwifery care in New York for their prenatal care during their pregnancy. But then when they get over to the hospital, they transfer care to an obstetrician. So it's a real well, different vibe. Depends on the midwife. I mean, I've worked as a doula with some that that's their mm-hmm. care provider the whole time, unless something mm-hmm. comes up. You know, yeah. if something, if an issue comes up, um, you know, a cesarean, if they need a vacuum extraction, then they pull mm-hmm. in the OB on call um, or the attendant. But there are a few that still see everyone straight through. Um, mm-hmm. But there's not a ton. There's maybe off yeah. the top of my head maybe three or four practices that will do that. And and it's yeah. definitely decreased in the time from when I started working with women as a doula. Yeah. Which, you know, I've had a number of conversations with obstetricians in New York about why they think that happened. And some of them are pretty frank about it. It's about the price of real estate. And if they're going to add midwives to, um, you know, just standard course of care in hospitals, they're going to have to open up more space for that. And, you know, they don't have room for midwives and obstetricians. It's a real estate issue. I also think think that a lot of women 
Yeah, and I think a lot of women don't even know it's an option. You know, I have some students that come to me, they've never done yoga, their care provider mentioned it, or they heard it's trendy to do prenatal yoga. And then they say, oh, you're a doula. So is that your, are you a midwife too? Like they don't know that there's a separation mm-hmm. of doula and midwife. They're completely different right. roles, but they, they kind of loop it all in. Um, it's kind of like when I have a friend, like one of my mom's friends, like, oh, I have a friend that teaches Pilates. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally different than yoga. You know, but in yeah. their mind, they're like, you know, they're an alternative exercise. And so people think um, doula and midwife, it's not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, oh, hey, I have a friend in New York. Do you know her? Exactly. You know, but, so it's somewhat in the same circle. So they, so they yeah. kind of loop it together. So, and then I've had women that once they're starting to take class, they get a little more intrigued by the role of the care provider. And then they get confused, like, can I have a midwife and an OB? And in some cases, yes, like some of the practices in the city do do have midwives involved in their practice. And Mm -hmm. then others are completely freestanding. So I don't think that even the idea of a midwife on this side of the country is as accepted as where you are. Yeah, I know. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. And a little, and well, sad. we're working on it. Yeah. We're yeah. working on it. It's getting yeah. more and more known. And then I, and, think, and the, yeah. go ahead. And go I ahead. Say also, I think what really starts to intrigue people is when we start to talk about the different models of care that you can get with a midwife as opposed to more traditional with an OB and what even just the appointments, how long an appointment with uh, OB is. And I remember doing a podcast where my, interviewee works with child's and ch- ch- choices in childbirth. And she was saying mm-hmm. that she found a study that OBs schedule about six minutes per in, per appointment. And yeah. I can see that because it happens so quickly where with my midwife, she would schedule like 45 minutes to an hour for a prenatal visit. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about, yeah. you know, and that's where women can get shortchanged. And, you know, I think that it's, the more that we talk about those models of care and how they differ, the more attractive that we can make it. I'm hoping that women will start creating a market demand for midwifery care, not only because then they get more attention in prenatal care, but because we know that that model of care delivers the highest quality and best maternal health outcomes for the majority of women who are healthy. Yes. And also- Not all, but the majority. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also not just the, you know- are they feeling like it's the, how they feel about it. It's not just the care, but how they then look back and say, you know, was I respected? Was I heard? Were my needs met? Mm-hmm. You know, cause the midwife tends to spend more time, you know, the births I've attended as a doula, I've seen midwives just hanging out in the room. You know, mm-hmm. one of the very first birth I attended as a doula, it was so long ago, actually, I think the woman just, the daughter just tried to think, 13 or 14. Um, and I remember the midwife just sitting in the rocking chair in the corner, just watching, just observing, mm-hmm. just being there. And what I've observed with OBs is they're, they often have two or three people at the same time. They're coming in and out. You know, they're really there just for the pushing. They'll come in for an exam. It's just yeah. the whole experience. And then when women can walk away feeling no matter what, how the birth unfolded, whether it's how they wanted or not, but that they're, they were part of it, that their care provider really cared. I think it makes a difference in how women view birth. I think so too. And in the traditional model 
um, that we do in hospitals now, that continuous care is going to come from, hopefully, from the labor nurse, um, though it kind of depends on how many other patients she has to take care of. Ideally, it's one-to-one care for a woman in active labor. Um, but she, too, has a lot of different responsibilities going on. And it's, you know, if you can have somebody there who is your support person who knows what's happening, um, it's ideal. You know, which is ideally the role of a midwife or a doula. Mm-hmm. But I have a yeah. question for you. As a labor and delivery nurse, do you feel mm-hmm. like you actually get to do one-on-one care? Because I don't see that in New York City. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And, um, you know, I have not worked bedside in a number of years. But what happened when I did was that, you know, you'd come on shift and you'd get your labor patient. And if your labor patient was in active labor, then, um, you know, she was your patient, she and that baby. If the patient was kind of, you know, poking along and not changing her cervix very quickly or didn't need a lot of chair and somebody dropped in for a labor check, well, then you might get pulled to go do the labor check. Or somebody called, you know, dropped in because they're having, you know, preterm contractions. You might get yanked for that. But um, your your labor patient is still your primary concern. And you're going to get back in there as soon as you can. Once things really get, you know, kick into high gear and that patient is in active labor or close to delivery, yeah, it's one-on-one care. That's the standard. That's impressive. I don't, I I mean, I haven't done a birth in a few years, but I was not seeing that for over a decade that they would come, they just weren't able to be there. I think it's, you know, the hospitals here in the city are just so big um, Mm -hmm. that they have the board in front of the nurse's station and yeah. a nurse is just kind of in and out. Um, it mm-hmm. wasn't until pushing you know, the second stage that she was really involved. But we really try to encourage our students to get doulas for constant care besides just a yeah. partner. Because the nurses were often covering two or three rooms. They would go on a break and we'd have another nurse in. It just wasn't consistent. It's nice to hear right. that in other parts of the country it can be and it is. Yeah. And, you know, in, in it, it also depends on how the patient is experiencing the labor. So let's say you've got a first-time mom and she's five centimeters. Labor is going just fine. But, you know, at five centimeters, it's going to be a while. Let's say she's got an epidural and she's 100% comfortable. You have her on the monitor, which you can watch the monitor from your desk mm-hmm. outside the room. Everybody in the room is trying to catch a snooze. You don't necessarily want your nurse hanging in there no, with you. No, of course. You know, you may not even want your mother-in-law or your mom or your sister or your doula in there. You might want privacy. You might not. You might not. But, you know, that's when that labor nurse can step away to the desk and keep an eye on things that way, pop in and out, take vitals when needed and let you have your time. If you don't actually need your nurse, then you don't need your nurse. Right. And and in that case, if you've got a nurse who's sitting at the desk with a sleeping patient, well, then, yeah, you go work on other patients. You do what you got to do. You back up deliveries. You, you know, you do what you got to do. But ideally, when your patient needs you, you're there. I think that's great. And I think in that way, for those that don't have the luxury of affording a doula, that they can rely on their nurse. I just don't, sadly, that is not the setup here in the city. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we have created this system where women are supposed to rely on their designated labor 
support person or what we used, you know, a lot of people still call the labor coach, Mm -hmm. which is uh, the woman's partner or husband or boyfriend or cousin or sister, not somebody who's been trained, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. And basically what we're doing is giving them the authority to tell us what to do in labor, which doesn't really always work, Mm -hmm. you know? Whereas if you've got you know, a, a doula or a midwife or a nurse who can be with you or, you know, somebody who has been in the labor room a number of times and knows how it goes. That's the kind of support that is really ideal, you know? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So much of the doula's role is to, t- and the nurse's role is to take care of the family as well as the patient. You know, the whole room is, the whole room is our, our charge. Yeah. I call it the birth posse. That the woman yeah. should think about. I have these weird uh, phrases. I have like the birth posse, and then I have this other thing I call circling the wagons. That the birth posse should be chosen carefully, and mm-hmm. like who the mom invites into that space can then circle the wagons. And by that I mean, kind of create this safe space so that the mom can labor and allow her body to do its work, and that she right. can feel open to being as vulnerable or as vocal or whatever it is that she needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, the reason I like to have a dual, and it's not self-serving because, again, I'm not doing too many other births, but I think I encourage women to do that. It's just like you said, it's to have an eye that knows what is normal, quote unquote, normal in birth. Because mm-hmm. how many times have you worked with a partner that seems really anxious about how the mom's doing when she's really in a totally normal space of labor? Yeah. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd get the calls from the husband be like, I think we're heading in now. I'm like, well, can I just chat with her first? Because yeah. it's so new to them. If you don't know what normal birth looks like, what physiological birth mm-hmm. looks like, it can be really overwhelming. You know, yeah. if you don't know these are normal sounds and normal comments of like, I, I want to give up. This is too much. Like, that's a great thing to hear a woman say. You're like, wow, I know that you're starting to really, you know, work through these contractions. You know, so I think that's why it's important, I think, to have an educated eye. And, you know, I think right now in in a lot of hospitals, um, because of how overcrowded they are, there's just not that space for the professional eye of the nurse or the care provider to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're going to go into midwifery someday? Um, I've had that inkling to do so. There was a accidental home birth that I attended. Um, It was a third time mom. And her water broke very like abruptly and she was basically on the bathroom floor in what we called EMT. Um, and I had just come back to the farm. So I, d- I did have some experience of like what to do while we waited for EMT. Um, and I had a brief moment of thinking, wow, that's kind of exciting. But mm-hmm. I don't know how it would work with my family to be on call like that. It was really hard mm-hmm. when I was a doula. But I do have the passion for it. So I don't know, maybe I'll still have to just support women from the sidelines, but it is something like maybe as my kids get older, Mm -hmm. I'll jump into. We did actually Mm -hmm. out in Oregon where you are in Portland, um, one of our, one of the teachers I worked with is out there now and she is a midwife. And so she kind of inspires me. Um, Jocelyn Brown, you might actually know her. Um, I know the name, but I'm not putting a face to it. She's a a lovely, lovely person, tall, pretty, um, kind of reminds me Uh of Giselle. Um, Yeah, she kind of inspired me. She jumped into that ring. It is something that I think about. I also think about maybe PT specializing in women's pelvic health, since that's something that I really am focused on in the prenatal I do. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, this isn't the end of your birth journey, so it's going to be interesting if we talk in five years where you, you've gone. <laughs> no, but I, I, think, I think you're smart to think about the call schedules because that's brutal. It was really I, hard to be a doula. And now that I yeah, have young kids, we don't have family around. I had to give it up just because being on call, you know, you drop yeah. everything and go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And babies like to be born at night. So, yes, you know, there's the all-nighters. Oh, my God. So many years of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm guessing as a labor and delivery nurse, you didn't have that as much of a schedule. But I, And I kind of envied that. Like, you know. Oh, we did both. Oh, you did We both. did both. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What would happen is, you know, like I was on night. Sh- I was a graveyard nurse, like 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Oh, for so about 10 years. Oh, thousands and thousands <laughs> and thousands. I've been at the bedside for thousands of births. Oh, that's wonderful. From all kinds, from, you know, the most spontaneous and natural where, you know, you practically sneeze the baby out to the most high tech and advanced, mm-hmm. the whole range. And it's given me a lot of perspective. Um, but the night shift was, so what you'd do is you'd, you'd work your, you'd be scheduled for say three or four nights, um, one week. But if the patient census was really low and they didn't need that many nurses on the floor, then they would either cancel you or more often they'd put you on call. So that meant that anytime during your shift, they could call you in to work. Now, the beauty of that was that, you know, you made time and a half. The hard part of it was that, you know, it's one thing if you get you get called at say eight or nine at night and you haven't been to bed yet and you you know pull in your scrubs and you hop in the car and you go do your job, that's a breeze. But if you get called at say two thirty in the morning yeah. when you've been asleep for a little while and you have to pull out, you have to do it then. That's hard. That's hard. well. That was the life of a doula: getting the call yeah. at two thirty in the morning. Yeah. Kind of I used, I even got calls sometimes. Yeah, I got. I remember getting calls once in a rare occasion where, you know, you sort of get to the 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning point and you think, whoop, not going in tonight. Now I can really sleep. And, you know, because it's sort of twilight sleep yeah. before that when you're on call, you never know, am I going to miss my pager? Am I going to hear the phone? That was the anxiety. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then you get to like 3.30 or 4 in the morning and you figure, Psh, there's only three more hours of the shift. They're not going to need me. And you go out. And then the phone rings and then you have to go into work for an hour, you know, something like that, just because they've gotten slammed and that didn't happen very often. Yeah. I don't miss the on call. And it was hard. Yeah. There was a lot of anxiety around it. You know, I couldn't make plans. Um, If I did go somewhere, I often brought my doula bag with me because, you know, when I was living in New York City, I would, we didn't have a car. So we're relying on the subway. And if I was in the subway for a half an hour where I don't get cell, you know, cell service. So there was a lot around it. And I did that for many years uh, before my kids. And then I did, I did like repeat uh, patient or, you know, clients once I had my kids. Mm -hmm. And then now that we've moved out of the city, I'm about a half an hour of the city. It's just too much. So I do feel like I do miss the excitement of the birth. I feel like there weren't many other opportunities in life that I'm so present that I would be just, I could look at the clock. I'm like, wow, an hour and a half went by, but because I'm so present working with that mom, the time doesn't feel long. It just feels like I'm right there in it. I miss Mm -hmm. that. I miss the, uh, the learning too. I feel like each birth, even though there's commonalities, there's still something to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was you, 
um, have five questions for people to ask their care provider uh, before their birth. <laughs> what are some of them? Okay. Just tell me some the of them. The first one is, what is your birth philosophy? Because I think if someone is really looking for a low intervention birth, looking for more of a physiological birth, they should make sure they're not working with a high-risk practice that's going to treat them that way and think you know, that pregnant women are broken and they're there to manage them. And the same goes the other way. If someone's very anxious and they want all the interventions available, they probably shouldn't go for a midwife or a home birth midwife. So making sure their their ideas about how women are, their philosophies, how one needs to be treated, how someone should expect to be treated. That's one of them. I also think it's important to understand someone's rates, kind of going back to the idea of high risk versus uh, low interventions. If again, if someone's looking for low interventions, they shouldn't go with a practice that has a 50% cesarean rate or that they right. don't, or even what is one schedule? How far past a due date is that practice comfortable going? So it's going mm-hmm. a little more nuanced. Um, you know, the rates are going to give a sense if they have a high cesarean rate or high intervention rate. And then I think the scheduling is something I don't think a lot of people think about too early on. They hit their due date or a week before their due date. And a care provider might start saying, let's talk induction when they might only be 39 weeks. And so if it hadn't been discussed ahead of time, where where the mom could have gotten a sense of what to expect. I've had some care providers, as soon as the water breaks, they're having to have their client go straight in. Well, others will say, as long as you don't have a fever, let's just see how things progress. So it's kind of the schedule they have in mind, even for pushing. You know, our hospitals yeah. here have a three-hour rule, even though ACOG has said that's not really ideal for, especially if someone has an epidural. And some care providers will say, let's just see how you're doing, how baby's doing, and make a decision about the schedule. And others are going to say, I'm going to stick to that rule. So I think mm-hmm. what's the philosophy, what's the intervention, um, what's the schedule, and even when they show up. I've had some care providers not yeah. show up until the very end, and then the mom's like, where's my care provider? So those are some of the questions I think they need to yeah. jump into. Those are good questions. I like that. So many of the um, you know, kind of customized prenatal postpartum services that we talk about like yoga classes or nutrition support or doula at every birth, they're really only resources that are available to some women, Mm -hmm. women who can afford it, women who live in urban settings, maybe in areas where sliding scale services are available. But how do we increase services to the women who actually really, really need this, like women in rural settings, women in low-income communities, women of color who have, you know, the worst maternal mortality outcomes? How do we do that? I think grants can be helped for certain things. I know the way that we've been trying at prenatal yoga centers, we provide free online videos. Um, we also mm-hmm. have a lot of online childbirth education videos. So those, those that can't get to a prenatal class can get online and do some. So I don't have mm-hmm. the answer for the bigger picture, but my contribution is to make the information available as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there are some doula programs that are in hospitals, but I don't know exactly where they are, that might be able to help those that can't afford it. But for Mm -hmm. my contribution, we have a lot of resources online. I know a lot of yoga places stream and people have to pay for that. But we've got Mm -hmm. 
I don't even know how many, but we've got a ton of videos in there. Some of them are very tailored. If someone's having back pain, there's a 20 minute video for back pain. So Mm -hmm. if someone in most pregnant women at some point have some sort of back pain or carpal tunnel or chest opening or shoulders hurt, that we're providing that so that women can still get that. Because I think the service of prenatal yoga can be so beneficial, not just physically, mm-hmm. um, but emotionally to feel that they have some understanding of their body and that they have some sure. autonomy over what's done to their body. And then just the education. I think the most recent statistic I read is that only about a third of first-time moms are getting are going to a childbirth education class. And some of that's it doesn't fit their schedule. Some of it is they can't afford it. So you know, we're trying to make that available so that women can educate themselves so that they can make decisions along with their care provider. Yeah. There's a whole, there are a whole lot of women out there who just think they don't need it. You know, I'm going to go to a doctor. I'm going to get an epidural. I'm going to have my baby done. Whatever the doctor says, that's what I'm going to do. And sometimes and, the doctor actually says that. I've heard students yeah. say, my doctor says I don't need this because he or she's going to tell me what to do. Which I don't right. think's ideal to put that, you know, that much control over with somebody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a philosophy that I have a really hard time with. But I think that, you know, women who are coming to your studio, women who are visiting your classes online, and women who are listening to both of our podcasts are women who are looking for better answers. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your podcast. Oh, sure. It's called Yoga Birth Babies. And it hits all three topics. We talk about yoga. In fact, I'm getting more into going deeper into the yoga. I was so enthralled by the birth part for for a while. And I was really fortunate. I cast a really wide net thinking, who is going to speak with me? And surprisingly, pretty much all the birth people I reached out to agreed, which was so mm-hmm. kind. I feel like I got some of the big heavy hitters in the birth world. I got Penny Simpkin and Gail Tully and Pam England, like some of the, you know, the pioneers. Um, so mm-hmm. we go a lot into birth. Uh, and then the baby part, we talk about breastfeeding. We talk about kind of the after side sleep, sleep, sleep training. I just spoke with uh, Dr. Harvey Karp. And then we also mm-hmm. talk about um, postpartum depression. That's a big topic that I think a lot of women are or sometimes frightened to hear about or overwhelmed and don't even know how to do that. And one of the most yeah. popular podcasts we have is called Childproofing Your Marriage because I think it's something that doesn't often get addressed but has a huge effect on a family dynamic as all of a sudden that baby comes in and sometimes the couple dynamic can get a little skew. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's it's it really is based off my desire to support women and give them information as well as my geekiness to learn and get educated and speak with these women. I feel like I get to do a lot of research for each podcast and it's exciting for me. I'm kind of a geek that way. I love learning. And so it's, hopefully it's as enthralling for the audience as it is for me. And people can find it over on iTunes iTunes and Stitcher Stitcher everywhere. And our, in the prenatal yoga center website. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I, we've just got time for a couple more questions. So I want to, I always ask this one, how do you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Hmm. Nobody ever told me that. The recovery from birth would be as hard as it was. Hmm. Okay. That's a good answer. It's good that people know that we're we're starting to pay more attention to the postpartum period, and, and I think that that's 
probably the most important shift that I've seen in the last few years. I'm going to put in another one too, if you don't mind. Nobody ever yeah. told me, and this is surprising by how much I had done in the prenatal, that you can exercise too much during pregnancy and can affect baby position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. You can tighten up those pelvic yeah. and back and those muscles so tight yeah. the baby can't move yeah. as needed. Yeah. 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 We've seen and that's that affect too. how my whole methodology at prenatal yoga center, because I had that. And my midwife didn't say anything. My doula didn't say anything to me. I was still on the spin bike like five or six days a week. And mm-hmm. so now I tell women that because it so affected me, which probably affected my um, postpartum being so hard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, then my last question for you is this. Where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? <laughs> the trenches. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> surrounded, <laughs> coming at it at all sides. Yeah, as I mentioned, my daughter's three, my son is six. Um, uh huh. You know, I feel like it's the trenches. They're just—it's just starting to occur to me that they're really individual-minded people. And it's yeah. so different from when they're really little, where you can kind of cart them around and really influence and do stuff, and be like, "We're doing this, we're doing this." Like now, they need more attention. Um, different than just keeping them alive and safe, you know, working with reading with my son at night and making sure my daughter still has attention is not just going to the older one. It's, it's a tough place. It's amazing and really hard. Yeah, it is. You're right. And three and six, boy, oh boy, those are, you're in the meat of it. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. I mean, like even just getting them to sleep at night, like just <laughs> Which is why you talk to Dr. Carp, right? <laughs> no, they- he's the happiest baby in the world. Happiest baby on the block. Yeah. Block, block. Yeah. 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 Now, he wasn't around when I was, you know, my kids were little, but I have friends that have used his techniques. And, you know, the first time I actually became aware of it was I was out for dinner many, many years ago with um, the Sarah Bowen Shea who is the host of Another Mother Runner. Mm -hmm. She's written all of those running books. Um, And we were just meeting and it was about 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night and we were at a restaurant and she mentioned, oh yeah, I've got twins. They're home in bed. What? (laughs) It's 7 o'clock at night. Your twins are already home in bed? Yeah. Yeah. They're probably going to sleep until 7 o'clock in the morning. And they were like five or six months old or maybe they were a year. I don't know. But I was just, my mind was blown. (laughs) at this concept. And uh, yeah. Yeah, the sleep thing, we we have, my son's an amazing sleeper. Within moments, he's asleep. My daughter just, she procrastinates. She wants another book read. She, her blanket's not tucked in. And you know, it's like payback because I did this to my mother. Like I remember this. Once you're asleep, it's, it's, you know, a very happy time, but it's, you know, it's by the end of the day and I'm a working mom and I'm just so tired. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. We had, you know, our first was a sleeper. Our second was not. She's still not. Our third was a sleeper. Our fourth was not. She's still not. (laughs) So I should get used to this pattern. All right. (laughs) Well, eventually they're a little bit more autonomous and they don't need you anymore. (laughs) You know, but still it's, you know, kids are who they are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, My son was active in my belly and he's active now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's how they are. 
Well, Deb, this has been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed talking to you a lot. Thank you. I would love for you to come onto my podcast. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, have well, me on. Schedule that. You have so much to offer. Sounds good. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And it was lovely to talk to you. And I bet we're going to talk again down the road. I hope so. Thank you. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Deborah Flaschenberg. And you can learn more about her at prenatalyogacenter.org. You can learn more about me at genefogter.com. Pick up the book. <clears throat> excuse me. Fighting that cold, everybody. Pick up the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, wherever you get your books. Find us over on the Parents on Demand Network. Leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. You know the drill. We could use your support and love people to keep this big conversation going and to help more people find us and get in on the conversation. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Go ahead and tweet me at Jean Faulkner, email me, Jean at Jean Faulkner, and we'll talk again soon. Bye bye, everybody. Oh,